Hello, and welcome to episode number 144 of the DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me today is Jay Wells. Jay Wells, by virtue of the fact that her last name is Wells and my last name is Wendell, often sit next to each other at RT. And when we're signing books, there's a lot of downtime, and so we talk. And over the years, we've had a number of really great conversations about writing and the state of the market and things like that. My first RT was in Orlando a number of years ago, and my first book in 2009 had just come out, and somebody was talking to me and talking to her. And the person who was speaking to her was really excited to meet Jay, extremely excited, and looked over at my book and asked what it was, and Jay hand-sold her a copy of my book in addition to everything else that she was buying, and I was shocked, and I was like, why did you do that? And she said, any books that sell are good for all of us which I now call the law of Jay Wells. It's sort of like the publishing version of a rising tide lifts all boats. Any book that sells is good for all of us. So over the years, I get to sit next to Jay Wells and have really cool conversations when the room is full. And because we're in the W's, we're at one end of the ballroom and there's lots of air conditioning and we're very, very fortunate. This year, we talked about strong female characters and why we use the word strong to define them and what does it mean in terms of gender. And so I asked, would you please have this conversation with me where I can record it so we can share it because this is really interesting. And she's like, sure. So for today, we have strong female characters with Jay Wells. What does that mean? What does it mean when you are trying to create characters that are female and flawed and real? And why does that always get boiled down to strong? Why do we use the word strong to describe them? And what are we saying about characters that we wouldn't describe as strong? It's a very long and interesting conversation. I hope you really enjoy it. This podcast is brought to you by Intermix, publisher of Z.A. Maxfield's My Cowboy Promises, the sizzling hot new cowboy romance available June 16th. The music that you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater, and I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is and where you can find it for your very own. And now, without any additional delay, on with the podcast. So we had this really great conversation at RT because everyone should publish with a last name that begins with W. Exactly. Because our row is the best row. And we were talking about quote unquote strong female characters, which is really funny because last night I was talking with my husband about Game of Thrones, which I don't watch because I cannot handle that much rape and entrails in my entertainment. And he was talking about how much he respect he how much respect he has for some of the characters because they're so strong. They're such strong female characters are the exact three words. And I'm like, okay, so what's a weak female character? And he sort of looked at me and he was like, I don't actually know. <laughs> it's like those three words automatically go together. Right. Even though they don't describe anything. And you had many things to say about that. <clears throat> I have lots of things to say about that. Um, actually, I uh, was thinking about this since our talk a lot. And, um, Somebody pointed out to me that the genesis of that term, that phrase, strong female character, probably was not having anything to do with women being like physically strong or mentally strong, but that it actually came from a strongly written female character. And by that, I mean a character who is well-rounded, three-dimensional. Has flaws. Has flaws. So in other words, 
it strong doesn't have anything to do with physical strength, but has everything to do with the, the writer's ability to portray a character in a believable way. Um, but I think that the phrase has really um, been uh, evolved into meaning a strong, physically strong, mentally um, character. Um, and the problem with that is that strong is a really gendered word because it's a very masculine word. And yep. so when you call a female strong, people assume that she has to act like a man. Yep. Um, and so then when that female character doesn't act like a uh, gender stereotyped man, then they say, well, she's not really strong. Yep. Right. So you have a lot of problems when you start using that phrase. Um, and unfortunately, I think we're stuck with it because it <laughs> like it's like I swear to God, I have not been to a conference recently where I have not been on a strong female character panel. <laughs> oh, God, that's terrible. It is terrible because all I end up doing at conferences is talk is justifying why I write strong women as opposed to talking about all the other things about my books that are great. And it's almost like as a female author who writes strong women or a male author who writes strong women, you spend all your time justifying writing complex female characters. Exactly. Uh, which is ridiculous. So, but the but the weird thing about being strong as a female is that it it implies that most of the time most women aren't strong. Yes, because if you have to define women as characters that are strong, that means the adjective has to be there because otherwise the assumption is that they are not strong, that they are are weak or poorly developed, or they're who was it that came up with the sexy lamp test where if you can replace oh. the character at the sexy lamp and the character, you're a shitty writer and the character doesn't need to be there. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know who came up with that, but they're brilliant. It is true. It is true. And it, you're right. I mean, it does saying strong female character makes it seem as if strength is the exception for women. Right. Um, I, I haven't met any women who aren't strong in right. one way or another. Sure. Or a person who isn't strong. And so, I mean, and I think that that's the root of the problem, right? I, 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 uh, I was at a, a Dallas Comic-Con yesterday, and I was on a panel, and afterwards this man came up to me, um, very nice guy, um, who, and I just love him. I'm, I'm like in love with him right now because <laughs> he was like, I have to talk to you. Um, I'm writing my first book, and my, and my protagonist is a female, and I was like, great. And he said... And, you know, through most of the book, she has agency and she's strong and she's doing things and she's great. And he's like, but sometimes she feels stereotypical. And I worry about that because I really want to portray, a, you know, a, a strong female character. Yes, dude, bring it. Yes, please. And I said, first of all, kudos to you for trying yeah. um, and for being aware of these things. I was like, but second of all, you know, it's tricky because... Um, you have to be careful not to go too far the other direction and make it so that women can never, you know, be vulnerable or act like, you know, a, a stereotypical female behavior. Sometimes women actually act like women. It's okay to have that, you know, it's, it's okay to have like traditionally female behavior in the book. I was like, it's, it's, you have to be really careful because it's a nuanced thing. And I said, really what you have to do is know your character very well. And know what drives her, what her goals are, and what her weaknesses are, where are her blind spots, and then write her like a person would behave with all those issues. 
don't write her as a, a strong woman because then you're being just as stereotypical exactly as the opposite end. And I said, and the other thing is have women that you know that, you know, read it. Women who are, you know, um, normal. <laughs> my, normal, but also who are mindful of these things because listen, I mean, women have grown up in the same society and been brainwashed by the same media that the men have. And a lot of times women reinforce those stereotypes just as much as men do. So true. So, you know, I was like, show it to your favorite feminists and see what they have to say about it. <laughs> that, that should be like the best fake Facebook group ever. My favorite feminists. <laughs> yeah. the, the other thing about the idea of being strong is that in a weird way, the antithesis of that is emotional. Mm-hmm. Like if you have great emotional fluency and you experience and share your emotions, then you're not being strong. Oh, yeah. So there's this there's this idea that a quote unquote strong female character is an emotionless character who does not display any reaction to the things that they're feeling, right. which is inherently a masculine stereotypical expectation. Right. Or they if they do show emotion, it's anger. Yes. Um, you know, it, and, you know, I noticed this with my husband and myself is that, you know, he has like maybe four emotions. <laughs> right. He's like, he's like. Happy, horny, angry, <laughs> hungry, hungry, right? Um, <laughs> crying I, over here. <laughs> I know that he has more emotions than that, but yeah. he is not, he is, he was not raised to be in touch with his emotions. So he like, he has a very limited vocabulary when it comes to his emotions. Me, yes. I got every shade of the rainbow of emotions and I can tell you exactly how I feel at any given moment. Oh yes. Every nuance of those emotions, because as a woman, I was raised to be in touch with those things. And that is a wonderful strength mm-hmm. I think to have. And I think that it makes me a much better communicator and it makes me more empathetic. And some people say that that is a weakness, but only if you're defining strength, by what is masculine. Yes. And and that one of those masculine attributes is emotionlessness. Yes. I mean, I have two young boys, they're seven and nine, and I'm trying to raise them to be emotionally fluent human beings. Mm-hmm. And whereas my, my older son is very introverted and quiet, um, my younger son is like, here are all of my feelings. Mm-hmm. So it helps him a lot because he is so often overwhelmed by his own emotions. It helps him a lot for me to be able to explain to him that those feelings are normal and that they have names. Right. But he has already encountered people telling him that he is soft, that there's something mm-hmm. wrong with him, that he has feelings and shares them and shows them and asks people how they're feeling, even though what he is is a very empathetic human being, regardless right. of his gender. And it's like, well, shit, am I doing him a disservice? Because he's going to be fluent in a, in, a, in a society that expects a lack of fluency? I think that that's a really important point. I have a 12-year-old son, and it's really interesting raising boys when you're a feminist because it's like... <laughs> you, you know, don't say. <laughs> yeah. And, and I also have the, the extra, you know, like, we're going through puberty, too. Oh, fun! On top of it, which is super fun. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the thing is that that is where you have to teach them mental toughness, right? Is, is the ability to be different in a society that is not comfortable with difference. Um, and, and it, and then to question it and say, why is it wrong that I'm different? Yep. Uh, you know, and so, and so that mental toughness, I think is another kind of strength that is under appreciated. Yes. Uh, for sure. You know, and being able to say, I don't care if you think it's weird that I am an empathetic person. Like why, like, 
it's wonderful that I'm empathetic. Yep. And also that when you are raising someone to be emotionally accepting of empathy and also the isolation that might come from being rejected from having for having empathy in the first place, you're also raising somebody who's okay with not only being different, but helping other people be different too, Mm -hmm. yet still being mindful of the fact that for us as adults, it's really easy to be like, well, you know what? Fuck you. Unfollow, disconnect. I don't have to talk to you. But when you're in school, you can't disconnect from those people easily. Right. It's really hard to build that sense of strength when people are rejecting you for being who you are in whatever form that takes. And then you just have to go up and still hang out with them for hours every day, five days a week. Like, God. It's so hard. I have a a great story to tell you. Um, My... You know, my son has a mother who's an author, and so there is none of this. There is none of this. I don't read books written by girls. That does not happen in our house. And yeah, um, us here either. (laughs) Right, and so um, or books for girls, quote unquote. No, that doesn't happen. So, you know, and it started very young because he really loved the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series by Jeff Jeffrey Kinney, I think is his name, and we read those books together. It was great, but then you know there was a lag, and so he found the Dork Diary books. Mm-hmm. Um, and loved them. And so he went to the book fair. I mean, book fair day is huge. It's like Christmas. And so we went to book fair and he got the new Dork Diaries book and he, he brought it out. And this boy was like, why are you, why did you get a girl's book? Yep. Yep. And so, and he was like, what do you mean? It's a good book. Like, that's ridiculous. And I, and so I asked this kid in a very nice way. I was not mean. I was like, well, why do you think it's for girls? He's like, well, because it's got girls in it, and it's a girl's story. I was like, well, let me ask you something. I was like, I love Star Wars. Like, is that okay? And he was like, well, Star Wars is for everyone. Ah, uh, yes, of course. And so even at, in, like, fourth grade, that message had already been oh, yes. given that things for men are for everyone, but things for women are just for women. And then in, in middle school, my son went to go get a book from the library. It was a YA book. Um, it was called Poison or something. And, you know, there's a princess on the cover and whatever. And um, and he wanted to get it because all of his friends, the girls that he knew that are friends, they all love to read. And so he was like, I want to read this book. And he took it up to the librarian who was a woman. Oh, no. And she said, just so you know, this book has a, a girl as a protagonist. And oh, no. And he was like, yeah, I know. That's awesome. <laughs> I like um, your son, but I'm not crazy about that librarian. No, I know. And that's the thing. I mean, they constantly are, we, we constantly are giving kids these messages that things that are for, that are feminine are something kind of shameful or only for women or, you know, weakening somehow. And so, you know, these messages start very young, which is why to bring it back around to the strong female characters, people are freaked out when they see women who are complex in fiction. Yep. Because for for the, all of history, women were the helpers, or they were the love interests, or they were the woman who died at the beginning of the story to give the man, you know, motivation. Office, right. And so and so now that we're seeing books about women who have their own goals and their own quests, and they have you know interests beyond finding the perfect pair of shoes and and you know the love of their lives not that there's anything wrong with those stories i love those stories but i think it's also important to have other stories where women have larger 
arcs and, and more complicated um, motivations and goals. And because, you know, I think it's a reflection of the way women are now. Um, so it's true. And it also, if you want people to be able to find themselves in the romance genre specifically, then it has to uh, portray a wider selection of female experiences, including those who are not currently worried about finding their partner or doing anything that's stereotypically feminine and are instead would really like to wear, you know, full battle armor and kick ass. Right. Yeah, it is. Well, I think it's, it's tough, right? I mean, yep. my husband is a great guy and, um, when I first got published, you know, I started noticing, I mean, he's a huge reader, but I was like, why don't you ever read books by women? And he's like, well, I read your books. And I'm like, right, but you want sex, so you kind of have to support my career. Right? <laughs> like, yes, obviously. Now, he obviously, he loves my books. I mean, he reads them and, and loves them, but, um, but he didn't read any other women. And I was like, well, why not? And he's like, I don't know. And it's, and I mean, I'm not married to a misogynist, right? Nope. I mean, it's just, he was raised in a society where he'd never had to question that. Yep. And, um, and he said, you know, he loves space opera and he loves high fantasy. And he's like, I just don't think that women write those books that, that in the way that I like them. Nope. And he's not, it's not that he, he's wrong. Of course, there are women who write those books, but those women in those books do not get uh, the kind of attention in the market. Nope. Um, and also, um, you know, you might have read a book written by a woman and not known it because she had to take a male pseudonym. Yep. So that you would think that it was okay to read it, you know? And so it's, it's, it's a conversation that needs to happen. Um, and it needs to happen more and it needs to be a less combative conversation because I think when the minute you scream at somebody and tell them they're a sexist, they're sh they're going to shut down and not listen to you at all. Of course. Um, so I kind of approach the conversation from you know just like well why you know like let's have a an academic discussion of, you know if you can have an academic discussion or just to, you know let's let's not be academic let's not be intellectually lazy about this topic right because I think a lot of authors. It's not that they are, are like raging misogynists. They're just lazy. It's easier to go with the stereotypical woman because you know how to write them. Yep. It doesn't take a lot of thought to write the woman who needs saving from the railroad tracks because you've seen it a million times. and You know how that story plays out. Yep. Um, All and, cliches are super easy to procreate. Yes. And, you know, I get it. I'm an author. I understand deadlines and things. Mm -hmm. And I understand that you have market pressures. Um, but it's worth it to, to, to try, you oh, know, totally. it's worth it to try. So one of the things we talked about while we were signing books was the idea of the hapless and the competent heroine mm -hmm. and how we have these sort of groups of heroines, particularly in romance, where you have the extremely competent professional female character and then you have the sort of hapless figuring things out character which is especially common I think in small town contemporary romances there are a lot of characters and I think that there are more women than men although there are some male characters that have this experience where x has happened in their lives and they have to start over mm -hmm. they are restarting their lives and they have no idea what to do because who they thought they were is not who they are now and 
Usually they inherit something. You could, I, I'm lining up the cliches in my brain right now. <laughs> they have inherited something in a town with a cute name, and they're going there to start over until they figure out who they are, and then they're going to go back to the city because small towns are dumb. And then, of course, the city turns out to be evil because small towns are awesome. Cliche, cliche, cliche. But we have this like almost dichotomy of competent versus hapless. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of both. Like you're either always competent and super good at your job, or you're always going to be figuring out and then you gain your sort of agency towards the end. Right. And I think you called that the competence <laughs> quest, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think this is a really interesting topic because like we can talk about it from the more like high minded, like what does this mean about, you know, psychology and, you know, like that kind of thing. Why but, are we portraying ourselves this way? Right. Yeah. Um, but then there's also the thing of, um, we expect, we expect different things from fiction than we do from reality. And I think that if you put too much nuance and contradictory human traits in a character, then people say, well, they aren't well written. You know what I mean? Like, even though, you know, cause sometimes I am hapless and sometimes I am competent. I mean, it just depends on the situation and who I'm with and what's going on. And, you know, I'm not always this outspoken, like, strong woman, you know, like sometimes I really do doubt myself. Um, But if I was writing myself on the page like that, they'd be like, man, she's all over the place. Well, that's right. I am (laughs) because I'm human. But, but in a, in, in a book, people expect, especially in genre fiction, they expect to kind of know what to expect. Right. I mean, and so it's tough for writers because it's hard to, it's hard to really portray a character that's that complex in a, you know, a romance where you have to hit certain conventions for it to be a, you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a really tough challenge, but, um, but the competence quest is, is, is really interesting because, um, I think what we talked about was that once a, a character is too competent, then the, like, the, the cliche is that she has to learn how to be, to be vulnerable. Yeah, she has to learn her emotions because she doesn't have them because she's too strong. Right. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's, it's interesting in romance because we were talking about, like, how do you write a really strong, independent woman who doesn't need someone to complete them? Like, how do you write that romance, right? Because, like, I, I was um, – my husband and I had this conversation one night. We were out on a date, and I was like, you know, what do you think would happen if we met each other now? We've been married 16 years. I have had that exact same question. We just celebrated our 15th anniversary. I think we're living each other's backstories. This is creeping yeah. me out. <laughs> exactly. Well, so, and I was like, well, what would you think? I mean, do you think that we would, like, connect now? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, we're connected now, but, like, if we hadn't been known each other all this time... And he said, honestly, I think that if you met me now, you wouldn't put up with my shit. Yep. He's like, because you're 40 now. Like, you don't put up with, you don't suffer fools. And you don't, you know, like, you will tell people that they're being dumb. You know, like, he's like, you would not have put up with the same stuff that you put up with when you were 24 when we met. You know, and so it's interesting, like, writing a romance for a woman who's been independent into her 40s or something, late 30s, which is much more realistic for today. I mean, most Mm -hmm. of my friends did not get married until their mid-30s or later. It's true. Um, And so, like, how do you write that? How do you, how do you write a romance like that? Like, it's, you're going to have to change the paradigm a little bit. 
from what is traditional, you know, um, but I would love to read books like that. Like I, um, you know, who I really love and I always gush about her and I think it's a little creepy um, is Victoria Dahl. Yep. Like I love her books because her characters are all, I mean, sometimes there's this, you need to learn to trust again thing, right. you know, um, but they're super strong. They're sex positive. Um, they're independent and those are the, those are hilarious, sexy books and yes. I love them. Um, so it's happening for sure. I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing those competent heroines, but. Do you have a favorite doll that you recommend for oh. sex positive badassery? Jeez. You know what? I'm so <laughs> bad with titles. Um, yeah, me too. Welcome to my brain. So the first one I read was about. The brothers who owned the the two brothers and the sister who owned the brewery. Yes, the brewery one is yeah. the the Donovan. So there's bad boys do, and real men will. But I'm not sure which book which one is book one. Hang on. I think good girls do is good girls don't is book one. Yeah, it's, good girls don't. So you like good girls don't. Um, and I think I read bad boys do first. I don't know which one I read first, but anyway, that whole series is great. And then the ones that are set in. Um, Jackson Hall are great too. I've read most of them. Um, but back to the, the competence thing. Now I actually, romance is not, I used to write romance. I, when I started, I was a romance, I would say want to be romance writer. Um, but it was really hard. <laughs> Wait, you mean so like well. you can't just sit down and whip out a romance? Like it's super easy. Right. No. And so I write urban fantasy, which is not easy either, but it, it's a little bit of a better fit for me, I think. And, um, so I'm writing this Prosper's War series, uh, which is where I'm the third book now, which is Deadly Spells. And um, they're really not traditional urban fantasy. They're like crime fiction with magic or like a cop show with wizards kind of thing. Um, and my main character is a cop. Um, she's pretty competent, comes from a back, tough background, whatever. Um, and it's really funny because she's good at her job, but people get really mad because um, – she is also a single mom. Mm -hmm. um, she's raising her little brother, Danny. And um, people get so pissed off <laughs> because she's, you know, because she doubts herself uh, as she's raising him. Um, and I'm like, you know, I don't, I think that people get mad because it's too honest, right? Because um, she's like this competent cop, but then she comes home and she doesn't know how to relate and be motherly to this kid really. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that's a dichotomy that I think is, is hard to accept is that you can be really good at your job and competent in some area, but in another area, I feel like you don't know what the hell you're doing. Um, and so she makes a lot of mistakes and um, people say that's the, like their least favorite part of the series. And I'm like, but I don't know. Like, I think that that's really interesting. Um, we're also not very tolerant of other people's parenting mistakes. That's true. Like I screw up parenting regularly. And I explain to my kids, like, you know, being a mom is not a job that I received training for. There's no class. So I screw up and I don't like coming up with punishments. That's why I make you do it. And right. they're always more, they're way more hard on themselves than I would be. And I explain, you know, this is a job that I'm trying to do. And my goal is to make you into, you know, decently awesome human beings. And sometimes this part of my job is crappy, but I'm still figuring out how to do it. Right. And it, it is amazing to me how other women in particular are very intolerant of people's other people's parenting if they don't think they're doing it right. 
Oh, yeah. I always joke that it doesn't actually take a village to raise your child. It takes a village to tell you how you ought to be raising your child, but they're not going to help you with it. <laughs> they're, gonna, they're not going to lift a finger, but they're going to tell you you're doing it wrong, and that village is everywhere. Right. No, that's true. Yeah. So, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting. And, I, and when you're writing a female character that has kind of a non-traditional female job, uh, there's all sorts of weird things that come up. Like, you know, I mean, she gets scared and stuff. Yeah. Um, like, male cops get scared, too. Of course. Uh, but we just, they hide it better, maybe. And I think also because it's in a first person, um, the series is first person, so you get a lot of her internal. Um, whereas if it was third person, maybe, I don't know, deep third person, you would get it. But, I mean, there are ways, to, like, a lot of thrillers are not first person. No. Right? And so you're you're not getting that internal struggle from in their head. No. Right? So you're not getting their self-doubt and stuff. So I, I don't know. I think it's interesting. Um, but I don't know. It's a very interesting topic. And I wish, like, what what phrase should we use instead of strong female character? Because really what we're talking about is just women who are finally being written in complex ways. I Maybe the word complex. Because the, the question is, to whom are we describing these women? Who needs to know that they're strong? And why are we using the word strong to communicate with them? Like, are we trying to find readers who haven't enjoyed female characters that have been written previously? Is there a specific reader that we're trying to, to connect with by identifying the, the heroines and female characters this way? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Well, you know, urban fantasies are really interesting <clears throat> example of, writing the strong female character. And I think yes, what's fascinating really what's really fascinating about it is because that's really where we started seeing these strong female, you know, the tough chicken leather cliche. Yes. And <clears throat> I was thinking about this earlier. Like I find it very interesting because in urban fantasy, these heroines typically are other, right? Like they're they have preternatural strength or they're they're vampires or they're mages or you know, they've got demon blood in them or, you know, something like that. Or they're it, able to, I see and identify a world that they shouldn't be seeing even though they're human. Right. Yeah. They have, right. they have gaze issues. Right. <laughs> and so like, so, so I find it fascinating and that, it means urban fantasy, very popular genre for many years, like really introduced this idea of this, you know, badass chick. Um, but the reason that it worked is because we weren't writing normal women, I think, right? Like right. we weren't writing like nurses who like work a super duper long shift and ma manage these basically superhuman feats, but they're not superhuman. You know what I mean? Like right. we're, we had to write about vampires and stuff in order for it to be accepted. But I think what it's done is it's wedged open this door and now we're more used to seeing strong physically, mentally, um, you know, female characters. And so I'm hoping that we'll, we're starting to see it in other genres more. Um, and uh, because it's more accepted. And I think that that's the thing. Like you have to kind of get people used to new ideas. Yep. I, and I'm really excited about Mad Max, the new Mad Max. Um, oh my goodness. Yes. Um, because 
I mean, there. I I went and saw it again this weekend. It's like I never go and see movies twice in the theater, but I could not help myself. And that's a significant financial investment now. Going to see a movie twice. It is. Like it when is. I was a kid, you go to a movie it was like four bucks. Seeing it twice, no big deal. Around me, movie tickets can be fifteen to twenty dollars, depending on where you're going. No, I know a matinee now is like eight dollars. Well, yeah, this is six serious, significant expense. And then I had, you know, and then I always have to get the popcorn and the junior mints and the drink and, you know, like it's psychological, like you can't sit down without popcorn. Right. It has well, to and be I there. actually, I pour my junior mints in my popcorn. Because you are a wise and good person. Yes. Because that a, is how it should treat. be. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, major investment. But I, um, I actually took my son to see it. Um, I made him watch the first movie's yeah, uh, and it and stuff, and um, and he loved it, and uh, but we talked about it, and we were like, well, so like, what's the theme of this movie, and like that kind of thing, because you know, I'm I'm a writer, so I make him do those things, and mom, um, good, <laughs> he's like, mom, um, but I'm so glad that it's doing so well because now. It's like, oh, you can do that. It's like when it, when a when when a story like that does well, mm-hmm. it's almost like it gives the industry permission to do more stories like that. And so, like, God, I hope so. Or let's see some more stories about toxic masculinity and women working together, and you know, portrayals of older women who are super competent. And oh, I mean, there's just so much about it that's wonderful. Especially that the week that it came out, it was number two to Pitch Perfect. Uh which is about women excelling in a artistic field that is at this point, pretty mixed gender. There are men and women and many other non-binary people who are full on into acapella, which is so awesome. Uh But that was not only was it uh, an artistic venue, but it was ambition and it was, it was competitive Uh and that movie was number one. And then number two, we have Furiosa who's there, you know, with a metal arm kicking ass in the, in the desert. Right. It, the fact that those were one and two, I hope that opened the door at least two inches. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, we hope so. Wedge it open a little bit more incrementally. So what did your <laughs> what did your son think? Well, I mean, he loved it because it's he was like, shit's blowing up. Exactly. I mean, he he because we made him watch um, Road Warrior and Thunderdome and Thunderdome until I saw Fury Road was my favorite. I mean, that movie is very important in my life. And um because Tina Turner, hello. Um, but so he actually liked Road Warrior better because he said he liked the car chases. And so, of course, Fury Road is a two and a half hour car chase through the desert. So Pretty he was much, like, yeah. That was amazing. So cool. <laughs> yeah. He thought it was really, really cool. So it's good. It's good stuff. And, and he's I, 12. He was, he was cool with what, what he was seeing. It wasn't like too violent for him. He was, he was yeah. all right with it. No, and I mean, we talked to him about violence and stuff. I mean, I actually, like, I would rather him see a pair of boobs than see a ton of violence. Like, whatever. Like, you know, I think that we have a really screwed up relationship with violence and sex in our country. Yes, we really um, do. Yeah, like, like really, violence is our porn. And, it's true. And so, um, so, but we talked to him about it. And we're like, you know, people really die. And, there's, and he doesn't play... Um, the really violent video games. And this and this was a big deal. Like I have a big issue taking him to see this movie because I'm like, it's rated R. There's a lot of violence. But then I was like, but this is an important movie because of the portrayal of the women and you know all this stuff. So you know, it was a it was a it was a landmark moment because it was like he's growing up. Oh yeah. 
I um I was reading an article this morning about how we have this not only do we have a messed up relationship with sex versus violence, but that we pressure women to breastfeed and then get mad when they do it in public. Oh yeah. Because breasts are too sexual, but yet we give, do this huge shaming campaign that if you're not breastfeeding, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. So breasts are sexual, but they're actually not permitted to be used for their actual biologic function in public. And you can see any number of people getting decapitated at like 7.30 on television. But right. God forbid you show breast exam techniques on the evening news. Like, well, we need a warning for that because boobies. Well, you know, and it's interesting. And this is, might be a little controversial. But um, I am certainly no fan of rape. Uh, I don't know any women who are. I am uncomfortable with uh, depictions of it. Yep. Um, I certainly did not like the famous scene in Game of Thrones with Sansa. But I felt like... It was it was so upsetting because it was a complete betrayal of her character growth. That is um, exactly what my husband and I were talking about last night. Yeah, um, but then like I watched the episode last night, um, and I don't want to spoil anything, but there's this really like violent, bloody battle, um, and it, it, it's interesting to me because we get very like upset about sexual violence, but other kinds of violence are fine. Oh yeah. Decapitation's no big whoop. Yeah. And so it's, I, I think that there's a big conversation and I don't think we're ready for it yet, but I think there's a big conversation that needs to happen about our relationship to violence. Um, yes. It's really contradictory. It's really hypocritical. Wildly you know, inconsistent. People get so mad uh, in my Sabina Kane books. <laughs> there was a scene, there was an orgy, um, they, no, my characters were not involved in this orgy. They like go to this house and there's like a party going on with like, you know, there's like, there was like a little person and there was a, like a gimp, not a handicapped person, but you know, the S and M guy with the mask and everything. Yeah. Um, and they're, they like come on the scene and it's like really, it's supposed to be shocking. Right. And kind of funny. Cause it's like, so like not what they were expecting. And people got so mad at me. Some people got mad because they thought I used the word gimp to mean a handy, a differently abled person, which I did not. Right. They clearly had not seen Pulp Fiction. Um, and, you know, so there was some stuff like that. And I'm, Or people get mad because she had sex with somebody. And I'm like, she just murdered someone. Like, my, that character is a vampire assassin. Like, she killed all these people. <laughs> but you're mad because she fucked somebody. Like, really? Yep. Like, that's what we're mad about. You know, I just, it's, I think it's really fascinating. And it's, so it's interesting as an author to see the reactions people have to the books and, and, you know, not having, not get upset about them, try not to get upset about them, but, but have a little distance and, and look at like, well, people get mad about this, but they love this. Like, what does that mean? It's a really fascinating perspective to have, um, to, to kind of see what people, react to and and what they don't so I don't know it it really is inconsistent especially because violence happening to women that's sexual is is almost normalized at this point which I have a huge problem with and my my big issue is that in romance particularly we have I think a preponderance of rape and sexual assault happening to female characters. Mm -hmm. Like if there's a bad thing that's going to happen to a girl, it's going to be rape. Right. Because that's really the only bad thing that happens to women. Apparently that's the only bad thing that happens to us. And I, and it bugs me because the oftentimes the solution is falling in love and the hero's magic wean and everything's much better. And she trusts again and lovely and everything is glorious and lovely. And I'm like, okay, well no, but on the other hand, 
given the number of rapes that happen that mm-hmm. are not reported, the number of rapes in romance characters may still be underrepresenting the number of sexual assaults that actually happen to women in the real world. So right. we have all of these, and it looks like too much, and yet it might not be accurately enough. Right. That well, troubles the hell out of me. That's a re- that's yeah. I mean, you hit the the nail on the head there, and it it brings up this question that I I grapple with a lot as an author, which is, is my job to portray the world that I want in yes. my fiction, or is my job to portray the world as it is? Um, and I don't think it is to portray the world that I want because that would be very boring, right? I mean, it would not be good fiction if everybody got along and everybody's personhood was respected. And, and we never ran out know. of chocolate or beer or wine. Exactly. Calories um, didn't matter. We all had great sex. Like, yes. I mean, it would be wonderful, but it wouldn't be very interesting reading, right? Because yeah. we read for conflict. And resolution, um, yes. And so, you know, like in my books, I mean, the, the Prosperous War series is pretty gritty. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there is a... There is a huge um, scene in Cursed Moon, which is the second book. Um, there's a madman on the loose. He's uh, released this um, sex magic potion. And um, he basically roofies these sororities on this college campus. And they rape the men on campus. Um, and it's not an easy scene to read, I'll admit it. But I really wanted to kind of talk about rape happens to men, too. Um, and that there's a, it's almost a joke if a man gets raped, you know? And so I kind of wanted to explore that idea. Um, and the book really is about chaos and all this stuff anyway. And I get that a lot of people didn't like it, but I wanted to say some things and I wanted to talk about some things. And unfortunately, the minute that the scene happened, some people just closed the book and didn't want to think about it, which I completely respect because there are trigger issues and all sorts of things. Totally. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. And so there's a lot of stuff I put in those books that people don't like because it's gritty, but it's also like, yeah, but um, it happens. And we still have this enormous level of discomfort with female sexual aggression and assertiveness. Well, no. And, you know, the thing is, the, the next conversation we need to have is about the expectations men have in their own gender roles. And as yep. a mother of a son, I am very aware of this. There was a girl at his school, in elementary school, two girls invited him to come meet them at the park one day after school. And I was like, well, why? And he's like, well, I don't know. They just want to play. And I was like, no, they don't. They want to be smooching. <laughs> they want to take you into the woods and smooch. And yep. he's like, mom. And I'm like, no, what? really? <laughs> no, really. I mean, he was like 10 at the time. And as a mother, I knew exactly what those girls were trying to do. Yep. Um, but my son, very trusting, not thinking about that stuff, wasn't really going through puberty yet. And I was like, he's going to get himself in a situation he is not ready for. Yep. And we never talk about boys not being ready for these things. No, and we and we drop this assumption that men and teenagers should A, have as much sex as possible, and B, should know what they're doing without asking for help. Well, and I mean, we, we were talking about, you know, being in touch with your emotions. I mean, yep. you know, the boys get confused, and they have emotions. They have big emotions, too. And often, because they aren't allowed, I, this is my theory, I, I don't know, uh, because they aren't allowed to, to experience the full range of emotion, it all becomes anger. And that's why you see a lot of aggression, right? Is because they have to repress, 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 and then they're angry, you know? And so I, I think that it's, um, I'm hoping 
that the more we see complexity portrayed in fiction of all characters, the more we have a discussion about the real complexity that exists in the world, you know, because we like to pretend that everything's black and white, um, but it's really not. No. And, you know, people are contradictory and people are strong and weak. And oftentimes your greatest strength comes when you're the most afraid. And, you know, like these are things that fiction can really explore in a safe way. You know, you can try these ideas on. Mm -hmm. On one hand, I get it. Like it's entertainment. Like we're just writing fun stories for people. But on the other hand, we're not just doing that. So basically the bottom line here is writing is really hard. Yeah. (laughs) and it's difficult and that's why it's uh, a tricky thing well and the tricky the other tricky thing too is readers come to stories because they're in a they're looking to escape reality sometimes yep and so you know some people don't like it when you start shaking up the cliches because they it's comforting Oh yeah, there absolutely. There's the order, and the, and the you know this is what I'm familiar with. This is this is the order that I'm used to, and it's comforting to read stories where things are 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 black and white and are easier, and I'm not challenged by the complexity. And so what happens is a lot of times books that do challenge that don't necessarily become commercially successful. Yep. And but that doesn't mean you shouldn't write it. I mean, I like I don't know. I I don't think any writer who goes into writing. I don't think most writers go into writing because they they think they're going to make a lot of money at it. And if they do, they're probably a little bit deluded because it's just not the most like financially secure career you could have. And so it's like, well, if if we're not here just to make money, what are we here for? And you have to question that and say, you know, am I writing, am I here because I want to have a conversation Mm -hmm. and I want to entertain people and, you know, or am I just here to, to, to recycle the same stories over and over? And I mean, you know what? There's room for all of that. There's and, room for all of that. And it's but. harder and harder to avoid that conversation now. I mean, it used to be that you would write a book and then someone would send you a letter care of your publisher. Yeah. And you would get it weeks later. Now someone's going to tell you instantly, yeah. hours after the book is released, what they think. And I think it's 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 difficult, right? I mean, how many conversations oh, we had about, oh, authors freaking out. It's really um, hard. I have a lot of empathy for how hard it is to have somebody come at you and be like, oh, my God, I hated this. I'm going to tell well, you why. I mean, I've been called a racist, a homophobe, a fat shamer. I mean, I, I every every word in the book. And um, but and, you know, my first reaction is, oh, my God, I am not those things. Um, but it makes me look at it and say, did I really do a good enough job in that book? When, you know, was I, did I expose some of my own blind spots? You know, did I, was I fair in my portrayal of these things? And so, I mean, I think it's easy. I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and say that. I mean, I certainly have days where I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to light my hair on fire. I'm so angry because somebody said something like that. But if you can take a step back and use it as an opportunity to say, you know, am I, am I being lazy, you know, or could I do better? And oh, yeah. I, you know. My first reaction to criticism like that is, oh, fuck, is it true? Right. Because I could be an unwitting douchebag and not know it. And I don't want to be. But if I'm unwitting, I didn't know I was doing it. I can do better next time. And that brings us to the end of part one of my interview with Jay Wells. In part two, which I will bring you next week, we talk about her Master in Fine Arts writing program that she's working on, as well as what it's like to write outside of the genre that she's most experienced in. 
We also talk more about writing and strong female characters and what that means and what it doesn't mean. But before we go, I thought I would bring you a small bit of listener mail because listener mail is awesome. This email is from Amber, who would like to share with you some of her joy at being an interlibrary loan librarian. Dear Sarah, I've been a listener of the DBSA podcast for a little while now, and I figured you guys would be the best place to bring my own little bit of gleefully stunned bragging. I have worked in libraries, page to circulation clerk to interlibrary loan staffer for nearly 20 years, and I've had the pleasure of watching the evolution of interlibrary loan technology blossom over time. I'm a resident of Illinois, which I have to say has a lot of problems, but their internal interlibrary loan system is not one of them. Not since my family moved here in 1989 have I ever had to pay for an interlibrary loan item to be shipped for me. I was honestly confused and slightly horrified when I visited a friend in California and was informed that patrons of different library systems had to pay a quarter, gasp, for an item from another system to be lent to them. This boggled me completely, but let me realize how wonderful the Illinois library system's interlibrary loan structure truly was. A few years ago, I was promoted at work. I work in an academic library in Chicago and moved into the ILL unit. This tickled me completely as suddenly I had the breadth and depth of the ILL options open to me at my fingertips. I finally learned to make WorldCat, the OCLC search engine, work for me and was not only able to search for any little thing my heart desired, mwahahaha, I could order it myself and have it delivered to my desk. Seriously, the mail cart delivers incoming material to my desk for me to process, so I don't even have to stand up. I honestly didn't think life could get any better, but then I recently started using Goodreads. I'm a late adopter. I own it and found the library search function on the single item records. This means that in under five clicks and a minimal amount of typing, I can order any book on my to read list and have it delivered to my desk for free. I am living the dream. At any rate, I do want to encourage your listeners to utilize their interlibrary loan systems if they're available. They're a great way to access material that isn't available locally. And while it's not instantaneous, it can certainly be a budget saver. And speaking of someone who worked in a very small town library, try not to worry too much if the library workers are judging what you order or check out. To be completely honest, the little old ladies in front of you are checking out way more risque stuff, and none of us circulation people are in any position to throw stones. I'm also curious to see if you know of any good lists of non-England-centered European historical romances, specifically set in Spain, Italy, or Latin America. The really fun and lovely show, Jane the Virgin, recently featured an episode where the leads, Jane and Raphael, were dressed in historical romantic garb and did a short telenovela-esque dream sequence. I haven't really been able to find much in those settings, barring a Fabio novel, and a smattering of time travel to Renaissance Italy historicals. Any help you or your listeners could give would be amazing. Thanks again, and have a good one, Amber. First, yes, the interlibrary loan is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. If I can't find it in an available library that I have digital access to, I have been interlibrary loaning the crap out of books that I otherwise wouldn't want to pay for. But I am trying actually to get more matter, solid matter, out of my house and declutter and re reduce the amount of stuff that I have. So I don't actually want to buy books. And that's sort of leeching into my digital book acquisition, which doesn't that sound weird, but no, I don't I don't want to own this, I just want to read it and then give it back. So I'm more than happy to wait on waiting lists and use interlibrary loan. 
to get books that otherwise I would have just bought and then put on a shelf and then a couple years later donated. Being much more responsible. It's like being an adult or something. The interlibrary loan for me is also free. It doesn't cost me anything. And it's wonderful. The fact that you can borrow a book from libraries that I otherwise would have to drive more than an hour or two to get to the physical book itself, that's just lovely. As for romances that are historicals that are set outside of England, that is a harder question and my brain is really sleepy because I have a cold. So I'm hoping that someone will be like, oh my gosh, I know all of these books. The one that popped into my head first is by Kate Noble. It is book five in the Blue Raven series. You probably should read the preceding books to understand the scope of this particular heroine, but it's not necessary. Part of the book, actually most of the book, takes place in Regency Venice. And she, the heroine, Bridget, takes lessons from a composer. The differences between Regency England and Regency Venice are some of the things that the heroine discusses in her own narration. And they do take a side trip to other parts of Europe, which for me was one of the most fascinating parts of the book. I have a whole subcategory when I'm reviewing that I call Regency, but not in a ballroom. Kate Noble writes a lot of Regency, but not in a ballroom. They're in the country. They're at country estates. They're not in London very much. This one went all the way to Venice, and I was really excited about that. However, my brain is not coming up with additional books, and I'm sure at about three in the morning it will. However, if you can think of a book that would fit this request, or you want to email me about something else, email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. That would be super awesome. I have one more email to share, and I have some news about Sassy Outwater. So, this email is from Ainsley. Dear SB Sarah, I loved, loved your interview with Sassy Outwater. I'm a regular listener to your podcast and know of Sassy from her music, but all of the other stuff about her, I didn't know any of that. And when she said she wanted a t-shirt that said, quote, I am not your inspiration porn, end quote, I jumped up and screamed, yes, here's why. I swear I am not making any of this up. Like Sassy, I am blind. Also like her, I have fake eyes. The brain tumors? Yep, got those too, though mine aren't cancer. But I have had eight of them, so there's that. Also, I used to have a guide dog. She was retired and passed away right after the birth of my first child. I imagine her thinking, damn, I am too old for this and I am checking out now before that stinky drooly blob gets mobile. Whenever people tell me how inspired they are by me, presumably for being able to speak in complete sentences and tie my own shoes, I want to say, dude, you get that I'd rather just see than inspire you, right? So the inspiration porn t-shirt, we have to make that happen. With all the health issues going on, it's hard not to feel like a freak of nature. Your interview with Sassy did more than anything has ever done to lessen that feeling for me. Thank you so much, and please pass along my thanks to Sassy for being so open about herself. Dude, you are so welcome, and you are totally not a freak of nature, because the nice thing about the internet is someone somewhere has the same things that you're dealing with, maybe even a slightly different way. But I do have news about Sassy. She is having surgery on June 10th. June 10th, as she puts it, is Tumor Killer Girl Day. She will be in surgery all that day, and her friend will be updating Twitter with the hashtag Tumor Killer Girl, or TKG, with updates from the doctor as to how she's doing. Last I heard, and I saw Sassy at RT, the tumor had good dimensions, and they were able to get a sense that they'd be able to get all of it. So she says thank you to everyone for prayers and well wishes. She is kicking tumor ass, and it is hard, but she is almost done. So off on June 10th, you have a few moments to think some good thoughts. Send them Sassy's way. 
This podcast was brought to you by Intermix, publisher of Z.A. Maxfield's My Cowboy Promises, the sizzling hot new cowboy romance, available on June 16th. The music you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter, at Sassy Outwater. This is Deviations Project from their album, The Ivory Bow. This particular song is called Celtic Frock, and you can find it online at their website, on Amazon, or on iTunes. And I will have links to this song and all of the books that we mentioned during the podcast in the podcast entry. Future podcasts will contain the rest of this cool interview with Jay because we had a lot of things to say and we're on the phone for more than an hour. And then I have other interviews scheduled that are also pretty darn cool. In the meantime, on behalf of Jay Wells and Jane and myself, wherever you are, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend. <laughs>